0: We're looking at, um, um, I don't know if you saw that on the, uh, (laughs) if you saw that on the, uh, I saw that on Facebook there, but uh, I've been in a lot of Zoom meetings uh, since this thing started and it kind of reminds me of that. Um, So we're looking at uh, life characterized by the indwelling Holy Spirit. We're looking at this aspect of the doctrine of salvation. And Paul has talked about ultimately we will be victorious over sin and death, that we are sons, children of God, sons of God. That is, we've been adopted. One of the blessings of uh, salvation is adoption. We've been placed into the family of God with rights and privileges. That's what adoption emphasizes. The new birth is we're in the family of God. That emphasizes that we're children, we're in, we're in the family. Adoption emphasizes we're in the family, but it emphasizes the rights and privileges of sonship uh, as uh, joint heirs with Jesus Christ, our Savior. And now we're looking at uh, a life of hope and glory, <clears throat> that we have a hope to look forward to and ultimate glorification. Um, I say here, uh, in at the, after the life of hope and glory, in verses 1 through 17a, Paul is focused on the spirit as the agent through whom believers are granted life and sonship. No condemnation can be proclaimed over the Christian because he has been transferred from death to life and made God's own child. Remember, that's how Paul started. Chapter 8, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That means there's no present condemnation, there's no future condemnation. The opposite of con- condemnation is justification. And that's an eternal thing with God. We, once we're justified, that can never be reversed. Uh, <clears throat> but the problem that Paul has already introduced in verse 10 is now. Raised by verse seventeen B, and uh, the question is: How can the Christian maintain hope for eternal life in the face of sufferings and death? Uh, how can those who have been set free from uh, the law of sin and death, as Paul will say, and as Paul says in chapter eight, verse two? uh how can we who have been set free ultimately die why do we still experience uh physical death um, how how is it that we still suffer if we've been saved and we've been the curse uh we've no, we're no longer condemned why is it we die and why is it that we still suffer don't these things don't these two things sort of uh, contradict or at least call into question uh, what Paul says in Romans 8, one. There's no condemnation. Well, if there's no condemnation, how does uh, our own physical death, how does our suffering uh, fit into that? I say here the exposition of the future glory to be enjoyed by the believer is necessary to answer this difficulty. In a sense, what Paul is saying in 17b-30 is that the Christian must go the way of his Lord. As for Jesus, glory only followed suffering, and so it is for the Christian. Uh, the life we now enjoy is nonetheless incomplete. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, we're told in 1 Corinthians 15. And only when the mortal body is transformed will the life that we now have be visible and final. So it's this transformation of the body that will ultimately bring about our ultimate sonship, as we'll see. Only then, as Paul will say in verse 19, will our sonship really be revealed, what we really are, and we'll be fully conformed to the image of God's Son, he'll say in verse 29. So he begins in 17b, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. And I say here, though, this 17, the second part, is grammatically obviously related to the verses that preceded. It kind of introduces a new section here. Paul transitions. And the glorious inheritance that, inheritance that is ours is not achieved apart from suffering. Because we are one with Christ, we are his co-heirs, assured of being glorified with him, but at the same time, this oneness means that we must follow Christ's own road to glory. We must suffer with him, share in his sufferings. The suffering refers to the daily anxieties, tensions, persecutions, you know, outward persecutions, inward trials and difficulties, physical and otherwise. That is the lot of those who follow Christ. The words if indeed could be translated as something like seeing that suggests that sufferings are to be expected. Paul says, uh, Luke says, but he's quoting the Apostle Paul in Acts 14 with his sermon there. He says, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Philippians 1, for it's been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. And 1 Timothy 3.12, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So there's outward sufferings, trials, there's inward sufferings and trials that come to us. We have to be careful not to interpret uh, this verse um, as meaning that our sufferings are meritorious. That is, they have merit, that, 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 they, that is, they earn something. We, we have these sufferings, but th- that they're not the reason that we are saved. They don't earn us salvation. Uh, rather, these sufferings, Paul will explain, <clears throat> prepare us. They're sort of a discipline by which we are prepared for glory. Uh, we go through these things to prepare us for what is coming. The glory itself is a free gift, the salvation, the eternal salvation. But the capacity to enjoy that, to enjoy what God has for us, is imparted and it's enhanced, actually, through these trials that we go through, through these difficulties. We will enjoy the future glory. We will understand it better. We will; It'll be enhanced by what we're enduring now. He says in verse 18, I consider that our present sufferings, are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Verses 18 through 22 describe the surpassing greatness of the glory that awaits God's people. Verse 18 declares that this glory is so great that it dwarfs our sufferings. These sufferings are, in fact, not even worthy of mention in view of the splendor that awaits the people of God. They are viewed from a perspective that holds this world to be a closed system, like atheists would hold. There's no outside intervention. There's no God. We're just evolved creatures. We're in a closed system. Well, then suffering is a harsh and final reality that can never be explained or transcended. You know, if you're, if you're an atheist, why, why are you enduring all this? What, what's going on here? But viewed from a Christian perspective, the suffering of this life is placed in a larger world-transcending context that although not alleviating its present intensity, intensity, you know, it's, it's still there, it's still difficult, gives to the Christian the confident, the Christian is the confident expectation that suffering is not the final word. What is now present and visible can only be understood in the light of what is future and invisible. I mean, if you're an atheist and you're suffering, and I mean, no wonder people would just kill themselves, and commit suicide. It's, that can happen even to a Christian, but especially if there is no future, there's no, there's no light at the end of the tunnel, there's no purpose in what you're enduring. Indeed, when we consider the matter from this perspective, that is this perspective of faith. That's what he. That's the nuance here of the word consider. Consider, I consider our present sufferings. Paul's looking at it through the eyes of faith. When I think of it through the eyes of faith, the sufferings of this life become ultimately insignificant. You know, they must be weighed in the balances with the glory that is the final state of every believer. Uh, this is similar to what uh, should have Paul told the Corinthians just a few months before. That is, Paul wrote 1 Corinthians some months before he wrote Romans. 2 Corinthians. Therefore, we do not lose heart, Paul told the Corinthians. Although outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, But what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. I mean, Paul never minimizes the fact of our suffering, the severity of Christians and how they suffer in this world. But what he's saying is it's still to be seen as insignificant in comparison with the glory that will be revealed in us verse 19, for the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed, fully revealed. Paul now explains with the four, beginning in verse 19, going through verse 25, that this expectation of this future glory creates at present a sense of incompleteness and even frustration and of eager yearning for a culminating transformation. In verses 19 through 22, Paul says that creation itself, that is subhuman creation, plants, animals, rocks, etc, eagerly awaits this deliverance, since this deliverance of creation is tied to the glory that will be revealed in believers. So Paul is sort of personifying, treating as persons as though rocks and plant you know can feel and experience that they are experiencing this um, just as the whole universe has suffered, remember God cursed the ground, he cursed the universe, just as the whole universe has suffered because of man's sin, so it will share in the coming glory. So it's, it's Paul like saying we can, we can sense sort of a sympathetic longing of creation for this future revelation of the glory that we wait for. And he explains this, verse 20. For creation was subject to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that creation itself will be liberated from the bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. In these verses, Paul explains with the four again what one might wonder in light of his previous comments, why would creation be eagerly anticipating the revelation of the children of God? That is our full salvation, our glorification. The reason Paul says is that creation itself is not what it should be or what God intended it to be. It's been subject to frustration. So this frustration is brought about by creation's inability to attain the ends for which it was made. So God created a perfect world, a a a perfect earth, and so forth. It was good, uh, God says at the end of the creation of wheat there. Um, But it was marred, creation was marred, as a result of man's fall into sin. And so ever since the fall, creation has been, in a sense, a state of frustration. So Paul is here really giving us his commentary on Genesis 3, 17 and 18, uh, where um, Moses says, To Adam he said, remember this is God after Adam and Eve have sinned. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree from which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. So this this subjection of creation was through no fault of its own, but, Paul says, by the will of the one who subjected it. The reference in the words, the one who subjected it, of course, must be to God. For he, and only he, is the one who cursed the ground, Genesis 3.17, and caused creation to become subject to frustration. So God originally placed creation under the dominion of man. Man was the king of creation. God, after the fall, subjected creation to the consequences growing out of man's sin, of human sin. But at the same time, this decree of God was not without its positive side. For it was issued in hope, Paul says. Creation, though subjected to the effects of man's sin, will also partake of the benefits of man's deliverance. In hope is probably a reference to the proto-evangelium of Genesis 3.15. Remember, Paul, uh, God says to Adam and Eve there, and I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's talking to the, say, to the serpent here, I guess, actually. After the serpent has deceived, Satan has deceived Adam and Eve. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head. That is your offspring, the Messiah, ultimately Jesus Christ, will crush your head and you will strike his heel on the cross, of course, it bruised. He was uh, crucified. But Christ will ultimately be the deliverer. So this is sort of the first announcement of the gospel, proto-gospel. This is the promise of God that I'm going to bring a deliverer who's going to reverse this curse, who's going to reverse what Satan has done. He's going to undo the works of the devil, as First John says. Verse 21 specifies the content of the hope. This hope has both a negative and a positive aspect. Negatively, creation is liberated from its bondage to decay. Positively, creation is brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. So we see then, as in verse 19, the hope of creation is related to and even contingent upon the glory uh, to be given Christians. And this transformation... Uh, creation will start taking place in the millennium, when God kind of removes partially the curse, the lion will lay down with a lamb, and so forth, and we'll see a transformation of the earth there. Verse 22. <clears throat> we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. So this verse, I say, goes back to the theme of verses 19 through 22 which was first stated in verse 19, the longing of creation for deliverance. Even now creation is experiencing the birth pains that will issue in a new day. This groaning as in the pains of childbirth probably, childbirth probably refers to the violence and disasters in, in nature. You know, we see all kinds of natural disasters and storms, hurricanes, all kinds of the natural things. There are groanings. And so the whole creation will ultimately experience a change or transform corresponding to what believers will experience. We won't have any of these disasters and things that happen. Verse 23, not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. So not only is creation groaning as in the pains of childbirth, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So our groaning then is kind of like that of creation. It's nonverbal creation is sort of groaning, but it's not verbal. It's characterized our groaning is by an inner attitude. Now, this attitude, this groaning, this sense that we have is not anxiety about whether we will finally experience the deliverance that God has promised. We are assured of that. We are confident of that. But we groan. We are frustrated sometimes. We are troubled uh, and frustrated because we have these remaining moral problems. We're still sinners. We have these remaining physical infirmities that are inevitably a period, uh, that inevitably uh, are part of the period between our justification and our glorification. So though we've been justified, and Paul will say later, those who he justified, he also glorified, as though it's absolutely certain it's going to happen, no question. Yet this in-between period we have to we experience these sinful things, these moral failures, these physical infirmities that uh, make us groan inwardly. We say, he says we have the first fruits of the spirits, and first fruits is an agricultural term denoting the first fruits of the harvest, thought of as a pledge of the full crop to come. Of the spirit means the first fruits who is the spirit one translation says not only that but we ourselves who have the spirit as the first fruits thus when applied to the spirit first fruits suggests both that god's future redemptive work has begun we have the spirit and that this redeeming work will surely be brought to its intended culmination the spirit in this sense is both the first installment of salvation and the down payment or pledge that guarantees the remaining stages Of that salvation. So we have these passages that mention this first fruits, this down payment, this pledge. Ephesians 1, Paul says, When you believe, you are marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, the praise of his glory. Thus, firstfruits has the same basic meaning as pledge or deposit in 1 corinthians one twenty two He that is God set his seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come second corinthians five five Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God who has given us the Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. And again, Ephesians 1.14, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. So our full inheritance, that for which we await, is spoken of as our adoption to sonship. That is, that condition in which all the privileges and benefits of our status as sons of God will be realized. This is the future aspect of adoption that we mentioned in our discussion of 8.15. So we talked about how that Paul uses the word adoption in both a past sense, a present sense, and a future sense. So he predestined us for adoption when we were predestined or elected or chosen. We were predestined to be his sons and enjoy the rights and privileges of sonship. Presently, God sent his son to redeem those under the law that we might receive the adoption of sonship. So we are sons of God. But the future here is 8.23. we groan grown inwardly waiting for the f- full culmination of that sonship, which will be glorification and experiencing all those privileges of sonship. The redemption of our bodies is specified as the final feature of this future adoption. For our redemption here, we're to understand the deliverance of our bodies from mortality and corruption. This is what we call glorification. Our bodies share in this frustration that characterizes this world as a whole. And Pansy can testify that she's sitting over here beside me with ice pack on her knee. You know, it's, it's not, it's frustrating, but here's where we're at, right? For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? What if we hope for what we do not have? But if we hope for what we do not have, we wait for it patiently. Though I say these verses make it clear that our expectant waiting is not something we should be amazed about, since this hope is at the very essence of our salvation. The very nature of hope means that expectant and patient waiting is going to be necessary on our part. So when Paul talks about hope, he means a confident expectation. We have this confident expectation. And this hope uh, that is an ingredient that it's part of our salvation implies that there's more of God's blessings in store for us. And the last part of verse, you know, 24 is an explanation of that very nature of the hope. He who hopes for what they already have. In verse 25, Paul finishes this section with a return to its central theme. The need in this age for patient waiting. Boy, that's tough. This attitude described by the word patiently is one that's frequently required of Christians undergoing trials. Patience. Our endurance. Not only so, but we also glory, Paul says in Romans 5, as we read, in our sufferings, because we know that these sufferings produce perseverance. And perseverance produces character, and character produces this hope, this confident expectations. So God has a purpose in these sufferings in this period between justification and glorification. James says, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. James 5.11, as you know, we count uh, count as blessed those who have persevered. You've heard of Job's perseverance and have seen that the Lord finally Uh, that the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Verse 26, In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the spirit because the spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. So in verses 26 through 30, Paul gives two reasons why we can wait with patience and confidence for the culmination of our hope in spite of the frustration and the trials and difficulties. Two reasons we can wait with confidence. First, there's the help of the Holy Spirit, verses 26 and 27. This is stated generally in verse 26. In this way, in the same way, I'm sorry, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. In the same way, suggests that in addition to the help that hope gives us in our state of weakness, hope that we're looking for this glorification, there's also the help of the, of the Spirit. Weakness refers to all the problems and limitations that characterize our present life. What we've been talk, that's what we've been talking about constantly here. After the general statement of the Spirit's help, His assistance in prayer is singled out as a specific example. We're told He helps us. How does He help us in our weakness? Well, here's an example. His assistance in prayer. According to Paul, there are times when we do not know what we ought to pray for. And I'm sure if you've lived long enough, you've experienced that before. Lord, I just don't know what to pray about. I don't know what's best here. I don't know what I should do. I don't know what to pray for this person or myself. Sometimes we're unable to discern God's will, and thus we must say, if it be in accordance with your will. Uh, This doesn't mean we shouldn't strive to understand the will of God in various circumstances of life. We should strive that. That's why we listen to sermons, we go to church, we talk with fellow believers, we read the Bible. We're trying to understand God's will in our circumstances in life. So we're not saying we shouldn't try to understand that. We're not saying it's wrong to make definite requests to God. You can pray. We can pray for specific things. God, heal me of this. God, help this person find a job. We can pray. But it does mean, you know, we can't. Presume to equate our prayers with the will of God. Uh, we pray for these things, but we don't know if it's always God's will to grant these things. Because of our weakness points us to the spirit of God who overcomes this weakness of ours by his own intercession. The spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. So these uh, groans are the spirit's own language of prayer. It's a ministry of intercession, I think, that takes place in our hearts in a manner that's really imperceptible to us. Paul is saying here then, I think, that our failure to know God's will and the resultant uh, inability to petition God uh, specifically sometimes, we just don't know God's will, We we don't know what to pray for, we we can't be sure. This inability to to ask God in prayer specifically and assuredly is met by God's Spirit, Paul says, who himself expresses to God those intercessory petitions, prayers that match the will of God. It's an amazing thing. And we know, Paul says, that in all things... God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So, the second reason for the believer's confident expectation of the future, not only the Spirit's help, but also the fact that God himself is working in accordance with his fixed and eternal purpose to bring all things touching our lives to a triumphant conclusion. This verse affirms our knowledge of the fact that in God's government of the world, all things are made to contribute to the welfare of his people. Pastor Ken often says, everybody works for God. Does he say something like everybody works for God? Yes. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So in this context, all things are principally our present sufferings of verse 18. But the scope should probably not be restricted. Not all things in life are good, but anything that is a part of this life, even our sins, can, by God's grace, contribute toward the good. Now, this verse does not promise, you know, any sort of material wealth. It doesn't promise physical well-being. You know, some people kind of pervert this verse. God works all things for good, and so, you know, there's some promise of material well-being or physical well-being. God uses these trials. He often uses these trials, as we know, to produce what he considers a higher good, a good that we don't really understand. Um, We don't don't understand why we go through something, why this happened, but sometimes it's for a higher good. And sometimes we get a glimpse of that. Sometimes we don't, you know. Sometimes it produces a stronger faith, a more certain hope. Remember Paul said back in chapter five, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, character, hope. So God is working all things for our good, even though we don't really see what has happened. I was reminded of this, um, you know, with Pansy's, uh, difficulties here with her knee because um, she was scheduled to have this surgery on March the 5th. And that was right before the COVID shutdown. It happened when we had to shut down sometime in the latter part of March, you know, she was scheduled for that and she got the infection in her knee, which seemed like a terrible thing. What possible good can be of that? I don't know, but there is one thing that's kind of interesting about that kind of infection is the fact that if she would have had that surgery on March the 5th, rather than, uh, July the 15th that she did, she would have been unable to get physical therapy because they shut down all the physical therapy places. They weren't coming to your house and the physical therapy, all the, you know, they were all closed uh, for a number of weeks. I forgot how many weeks, eight, nine, 11 weeks they were closed. So, that would have been a terrible thing to get that operation, and then because you really need physical therapy on your knee, as I understand, and so you know, there you know that seemed like a terrible thing, and it, it is it is terrible <laughs> to go through that. But there was a good that came out of it. She didn't have the operation, and then not able to get physical therapy. So the promise here to us is that God is um, that 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 nothing nothing in this world. Uh, that's not intended by God to, in, to assist us in our earthly life, our earthly pig, pig, uh, pilgrimage, to bring us safely to that glorious destination, is going to be allowed by God. Nothing happens to us, how terrible and awful it may seem. Nothing, none of that is allowed by God unless it's part of his plan to bring us ultimately to our glorious destination. I say two clauses describe those for whom all things work for good, those who love God and those who have been called according to his purpose. These two clauses describe all believers. Loving God sums up the basic inner direction of all Christians, but only Christians. The second clause looks at our relationship to God from the divine side. We are those who have been called according to his purpose. It's clear from verses 29 through 30 that this second clause contains the real reason Christians can know all things are working for good. Paul says Christians are those who have been called. Called refers to God's effective summons by which people are brought into relationship with himself. What theologians call the effective call or the effectual call. So those who have been called describes not Christians, uh, Christians not as the recipients of an invitation uh, that was up to them to accept or reject, but he describes us as the objects of God's calling. God called us and drew us and summoned us to become recipients of his grace. So to be called of God is the equivalent of having become a Christian, as we'll see in verse 30, those he called he justified and those he justified, he glorified. So everyone who's justified was called. All the called are justified. This calling takes place in accordance with God's purpose. God has a purpose for calling us to himself. Here are, here, as in other key texts, the references to God's eternal purpose in salvation. And, you know, Romans speaks of that. Others, he'll say in Romans 9, yet before the twins were born uh, or had anything done, anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, God chose Jacob over Esau, not because of something he saw in Jacob, some good that Jacob had done, but according to his purpose. Ephesians 1:11 In him we were also chosen having been predestined according to his plan according to the plan of him the purpose who works everything in conformity with the purpose of his will Ephesians 3:11 according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Jesus Christ our Lord 1 Timothy 1:9 He has saved us and called us to a holy life not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. So God's calling of us to salvation is issued with a particular purpose that verses 29 through 30 are now going to spell out for us. And what is that purpose that he's, That believers should become like Christ and share in his glory. Verse 29 For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. So verses 29 through 30 spell out the purpose or plan of God to which Paul has referred in verse 28. In doing so, however, these verses form the basis for not only verse 28, but the whole preceding discussion of Christian assurance. For it's this unfolding of the plan of God in the lives of individual believers that's the ultimate foundation for our hope of glory, hope of glorification. God's ultimate purpose for believers is that they be conformed to the image of his son. Adam, who was created in God's image, tragically transformed that image into one that is earthly and marred by sin. It is this image that is now imprinted on all who descend from him. So we're in the image of God still, but it's a marred image. It's not what it should be. Now it is God's purpose to imprint all those who belong to Christ, the image of the second Adam. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, and just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, Adam, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man, Jesus Christ. God has predestined believers to a future glory that Christ already enjoys. He is the firstborn. As Christians have their bodies resurrected and transformed, They will join Christ in his glory, and thus the purpose of God to make Christ the firstborn among many brothers and sisters will be accomplished. God brings each of us to that goal through a series of acts on our behalf. Those he foreknew, he predestined. You know, he predestined, he called, he called, he justified. First, he foreknows us. And this is a little controversial idea here. What exactly does Paul mean when he says those he foreknew he predestined? The verb is used, this word foreknow, is used five times in the New Testament. That's the verb. The cognate noun or the noun of the same, same verb. The noun foreknowledge is used twice Acts 2, 1 Peter. In two instances, when the words are used of human beings, the sense is simply to know ahead of time. So a couple of times when we're talking about human beings, it just simply means you just knew ahead of time. Uh, But but now we're talking about the times when it's used of God, the other times, the other uh, five times. Uh, Some believe that this meaning of foreknow, that's the meaning of foreknow. Uh, For know here, that is, <clears throat> that God foreknew. He just knew ahead of time. That is through His omniscience. We're only talking about God looked down through the halls of uh, through the halls of eternity, the time through the through eternity, and uh, and saw. He just foreknew. So some believe that he just fore foreknew, foreknew here, and just it's just talking about really His omniscience knowing ahead of time. The idea being that God foreknows who will believe, and this foreknowledge in turn becomes the basis of predestination. Those God foreknew, foreknew, he also predestined. This is the Arminian view, or sometimes called the prescience view of election, that God chooses for salvation those that he saw were willing to accept him. It's conditioned upon our being willing to accept God. So God looks down through eternity. He sees those who are willing to accept him, and he predestines those. God elects those to be saved whom he he has foreseen will place their faith in Christ. I mean, God knows who's going to place their faith in Christ, but what is the basis of their placing their faith in Christ? Why do they do that? Theologically, this view is problematic, this Arminian view, this priesthood's view, in that the text does not say God foreknew faith. It doesn't say God foreknew who would believe. But it says God foreknew individuals, those God foreknew he predestined. It doesn't say he foreknew their faith. Based upon what we have seen of man's depravity in the book of Romans, all that God could have seen, could have been expected to see in eternity pass from mankind, unaided by divine grace, is unbelief. There's none that seeks after God. There's, there's no not one apart from divine grace. All we would see without God's help, looking down through the time of et- halls of eternity you know, times, is, is unbelief. It's improbable that this verb for know, I'm just giving the Greek here, prognosko, means prescience or just knowing the future ahead of time. Although it does have that meaning in the New Testament when you're talking about humans, it, it's only when speaking of humans. And the other five of occurrence of this word, the verb and the noun, where God is the author, the idea is to know intimately, have regard for or for love. So it means more than just, to be able to look out in the future, omniscience. But it means something more. It means to know intimately, to for love. This being the case, the difference between know or love beforehand and choose beforehand virtually ceases to exist. For know suggests a knowledge or love that is unique to believers and that leads to their being predestined. For instance... In Acts 2.23, here's a use of the verb, Luke indicates that Jesus was handed over by the deliberate plan and foreknowledge. God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. Here, foreknowledge means something more than God just knew ahead of time about the crucifixion. Rather, the idea is akin to determined beforehand. God, Jesus was handed over by the deliberate plan and foreknowledge. It means more than just knew ahead of time that Christ would be crucified. This is suggested by the single article joining deliberate plan and foreknowledge. This is a kind of a grammatical point here, but in the Greek, it suggests that deliberate plan and foreknowledge are speaking of the same idea, not two different ideas. Certainly in 1 Peter 1.20, the verse says, He has foreknown before the foundation of the world, for known means more than to know beforehand. The NIV actually has, he was chosen before the creation of the world. This use of prognosco is probably based on the well-known sense of the Hebrew word know, which is translated by the word know in the, in the Greek translation. So what we have is we have this use of know, meaning more than just to know beforehand in the old Testament, like Genesis 18, 19, for I have known him. God says about Abraham, I have known him. He means more than just, hey, I know who Abraham is. He means I know him intimately. I chose him. It's the same word that we're Adam knew Eve. Adam knew his wife. We know that's a euphemism for something more than just knowing her. Jeremiah 1.5, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you or I chose you. Amos 3.2, same verb we're talking about You, Israel, only have I known of all the families of the earth. He doesn't mean, hey, you're the only ones I really know about. I don't know anything about the other families of the earth. (laughs) That's nonsense. You only have I known intimately. You only have I chosen. So God's foreknowing, his selection of us before the creation of the world, leads to his predestined, predestined us. This verb, and this is the verb, a different verb, pro means that as the idea of God's for loving or for knowing by focusing attention on the purpose of God's electing grace. God predestined us. God set his love on us in order that he might predestine us to be conformed to the image of son. So those he for love, he, he chose, he predestined. God set his love on us, and he predestined, he chose us. In verse 30, Paul resumes the chain of verbs. This predestination is accomplished by calling us. That's that effectual call, effective call. Justifying us and glorifying us. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. Paul speaks of our glorification using the past tense. He doesn't say Those he called, he justified, and those he justified, he will glorify. But he speaks of it as though it's already happened. It's not happened to most of us who are alive. We're not experienced glorification. But it's so certain that Paul speaks about it with a past tense here, as though it's already happened. It's settled. And so this is the ultimate source of the assurance you know that we enjoy is this certainty uh, of this final ultimate culmination of glory this assurance of salvation and it kind of brings to a climax this idea there's no condemnation we are already in a sense said to be glorified I say it's often been remarked that verses 29 through 30 contain an unbroken chain Uh, reaching from eternity to eternity. All those foreknown of God are without exception eventually glorified. Well, our final section, A Life of Assurance and Security, verses 31 through 39. This section, while responding immediately to what Paul has been saying in chapter 8, and especially 18 through 30, is intended to cap off Paul's many-sided discussion of Christian assurance in chapters 5 through 8 as a whole. This beautiful and familiar celebration of the believer's security in Christ comes in response to Paul's rehearsal of the blessings that have been granted to the believer through the gospel. So we hear again in this section what we heard in chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, about the love of God for us and the assurance that that love brings for us. We hear about the certainty of our final vindication because of the justifying verdict of God that's already been rendered, of how these great forces ultimately render impotent, without power, these tribulations that we experience in this life. In verses 31 through 34, Paul's language is dominated by judicial imagery. The law court, because God is for us. The verdict he has already rendered over us in justification stands as a perfect guarantee of the vindication in his vindication in the judgment. Verse 31 <clears throat> What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, as Paul has shown, who can be against us? In response to these things, refers as mentioned above to all the blessings ascribed into Christians to Christians in chapters five through eight. All this is summed up in the simple statement: If God is for us, if God is on our side, if He's working for us, when we stand, who who can stand against us? Uh, Obviously, Paul doesn't mean nobody will, in fact, oppose us, but that nobody or no thing can ultimately harm us, ultimately, or stand in a way of of what God is going to do for us, because he is for us. Verse 32, And he who did not spare his own son, but gave him for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? God's being for us has its greatest demonstration in giving his own son for us, a demonstration that should leave no doubt about his commitment to be for us in the future. Rather than sparing his own son, God gave him up. This verb is picked up from the Gospels where it's used in predictions that Jesus will be given up or handed over as the verb here. It also occurs three times in Isaiah 53, that great passage about the death of our Savior, his sacrifice for us of the, of the servant of God to describe the handing over of the suffering servant. God gave him over to our sins. His soul was given over to death. Because of their sins, he was given over there in Isaiah 53. So here we're reminded the ultimate agent in the sacrifice the sacrificial death of our savior was god the father himself now we know the son was willing to do this but god was the ultimate one who was bringing this out god gave him over verse 32 is kind of a conditional sentence you know if you know if he who did not spare his own son kind of like the Protestants, remember the if if so and so then so and so how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That's the conclusion. If it's true that God didn't spare his own son, which he didn't, how will he graciously not give us all things? Paul's point is that if God has indeed given his son for us, how can anyone doubt he will not also graciously give us all things? So all things refers to those blessings, spiritual and material that we require on our path to our final salvation. Whatever we require, God will give us whatever we require on our path to our final salvation. Verse 33, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one that condemns? No one Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. I mean, this is a hard passage for those who believe you can lose your salvation. If God be for us, who can be against us? You know, he's interceding at the judgment. No one will be able to stand and accuse us, not Satan, not even our own sins. No accusation will be effective because it's against those whom God has chosen, God's elect. And, you know, as Paul has demonstrated in verses 28 through 30, um, those who are God's elect ones by virtue of his calling are assured of glory. A further basis for the ultimate failure of any accusations against us is found in the final clause of verse 33. It is God who justifies. Verse 34 continues the thought of the last clause. By giving the additional reasons why accusations will not stand against believers of the judgment, why no one condemned the believer. Not only is it God who justifies, there's no higher court than God, you know, there's no court to appeal to, there's no supreme <laughs> supreme court above God. If God says you're justified, that's it. But it's Christ Jesus who died for our justification. But more than that, he was raised to life and has ascended to the right hand of God so that he might intercede for us. Thus ensuring that the justifying verdict for which he died is applied to us in the judgment. In verses 35 through 39, Paul will add to this idea in verses 31 through 34, that not only can we have assurance in the last day, but assurance for all the days in between. Not only is the believer promised ultimate vindication, he or she is promised victory over all the forces of this world. And the basis for this assurance is the love of God for us in Christ. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? The questions that begin verse 35 set the tone for the next five verses. Paul leaves behind the judicial imagery of verses 31 through 34 and moves to a more personal and relational emphasis based on the love of God in Christ for us. Paul lists a number of difficulties that might conceivably endanger the believer's relationship with his Lord. All of these items in this list except the last one are found in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-six 26 through 27. And 12.10, where Paul lists some of the hazards he himself has experienced. Trouble, hardships, persecutions, famine, nakedness, danger. Those are the kinds of things he mentions in his hardship list. So Paul was able to prove for himself by his own experience that no earthly peril, no earthly disaster is capable of disturbing our relationship, disrupting our relationship with the love of Christ for us. Verse 36, as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. This verse, uh, cited from Psalm forty-four twenty-two, 22, something of an interruption in the flow of thought between 35 and 37. Paul's reason for this citation is to remind his readers, as he often does, that the sufferings experienced by Christians should occasion no surprise... Since it's written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Know in all these things. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. The know of this verse connects back with verse 35. Who shall separate us? shall trouble? No. The answer to the question, who shall separate us? No. Nothing. It's a negative. Here Paul goes further. Not only are such things listed in verse 35 unable to separate us, from Christ's love. On the contrary, we are more than conquerors with respect to them. Uh, now, this victory, of course, is not our own victory, not something we do, but it's gained only through him who loved us, as he says. Verse 38, for I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The assurance expressed in verse 37 is now grounded with the four here, explaining in a personal testimony of the apostle himself. Paul now stands completely convinced that nothing at all will be able to separate believers from the love of God in Christ. In other words, we can't lose our salvation. We're assured of this future glory. The list of possible threats to this security unfolds mainly in pairs. Death and life, angels and demons, the present and the future, height and depth. Most of these are self-explanatory. The terms height and depth are probably used here In a simple spatial sense, the idea is that the entire universe, nothing in the universe, high or low. Unless someone thinks that Paul has omitted something that could threaten the believer's security in Christ, I mean, this is what our Arminian friends who say, you can lose your salvation, this is where they come in, they say, well, none of these things can, but I can. (laughs) I can separate myself from the Lord. No, no. Paul says here, uh lest someone think that he's omitted something that could threaten the security he concludes with a comprehensive anything else in all creation this is a catch all emphasizing anything that one might think has been omitted from the previous list so Paul ends on this Christological note Christ the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our lord and that's what salvation is we're experiencing the love of Christ love of god in Christ it is this giving his own son that God's love is in giving the son that uh, above all that's made known to us and only in relation to Christ do we experience the love of God for us but we do and we're assured that it will continue ultimately to our glorification all right that ends on a high note there doesn't it in uh, chapter 8